Hi, you're listening to We Make Media, a podcast about how the culture we produce shapes media and how that goes both ways. In this third series, Femme Futures, I speak to women creatives shaping the future of media. Today I'm talking with Adriana Vecchioli, a French-Italian actress, filmmaker, and XR designer living in Los Angeles. Formerly a software engineer, she left Twitter to follow her passion for filmmaking. Blending software magic with artistry, Adriana has designed immersive experiences for Warner Brothers, Viacom, The Hunger Games, NBA, Coachella, and Snapchat. Layered female protagonists, dark humor, and immersive storytelling are the staples of her cinematic language. She's co-founded an XR design studio in Los Angeles called Velvet Unicorn, and her work has been exhibited in London, Paris, Barcelona, and Los Angeles. She's currently in week three of a four-week Kickstarter campaign to fund her film Coming In Hot, and we'll get into why she still makes movies after proclaiming the frame dead in her 2016 viral Medium article. Adriana, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Karen. Thank you so much for joining me. How is the campaign going? It's going well, but it's so much work. I feel it's more work than making the film itself. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the things we do um, to make things happen, to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so much to talk about on XR and film, film history, and, and, and you have so many, so many brilliant things to say. So I, I just want to uh, start with just talking about the, the frame and the lens of XR. Yeah. And um, uh, Robert Stromberg, uh, who said, you know, one of the main challenges for storytellers is learning to think in terms of spheres instead of rectangles. Yes. Um, yeah, I think that's it's really profound in terms of ways of ways of seeing um, and and working and in, going into uh, these new media formats. Can you elaborate a little bit uh, um, on that and and what that what that move? How do we get into that mindset? Sure. Well, um, as human beings, we experience the world in terms of spheres. Like if you think like, you know, we all live in this big sphere floating into space, uh, but also in our own little bubbles. And uh, um, I feel like, you know, when I'm moving through the world, it's like there's a bubble and and to which I am the center that um, walks along with me everywhere I go. But when it comes to art in making art in making art that, that is shareable, with an audience, with everyone, artists are taught to um, fit, to let it fit into a rectangle, like whether it's the page, the screen, it's about you know, being shareable. It's because we've been sharing ideas on the page. We've been sharing images and moving images on screens. Mm. So it feels um, instinctive, but really it's not. Really, it's because we've, we've learned it since, uh, uh, since our infancy. So what is beautiful about immersive storytelling is that we can come back to the sphere space, which is like the more natural space and mm, to us. And uh, so something like a big challenge for artists and storytellers is to let go of the old, old patterns that we learn that work well, to that serve the page well, the rectangle well, mm. to expand at another dimension and um, Think in terms of spheres yeah it's amazing as it as it gets closer it's just such an interesting connection there with just the eyeball and the lens right and mm-hmm. as we get kind of closer connecting those two things um and just having the, the the lens be right on our eyeballs but the irony of this is i mean it depends how you experience immersive storytelling you know if you go you, you can go inside a physical space that's a sphere and it's all projected on on you know inside the walls of that sphere but mm-hmm. once when you experience vr or ar um there's still the intermission of screens of the rectangle because vr is like 
two screens really close to your to your face that gives mm. the illusion of the sphere and AR most of the time is through the phone so through a, a rectangular window so we still haven't completely um, removed the rectangle but it feels like it feels like a bridge with um, bridging today's technology with tomorrow's future tomorrow's possibilities talk a lot about the player's psychology becoming the frame yes uh, and how this relates to to empathy and what and and how as as developers and creatives folks need to be empathetic to this psychology uh, to properly direct the gaze and you know and and, mm-hmm. and have some creative control over the over the experience um can you give us some examples of of that relationship of empathy and what happens when it's not there or what the possibilities are when it is well so um when I was researching for this article. And you know, like the different, you know, the difference it makes when um, we have like a director that creates a frame, like a certain composition, and and has the, the power to edit, versus when it's more like free flowing and immersive storytelling. Um, I met with some uh, video game designers, and they were telling me that they had been thinking about that for for decades, because in you know in most video games you have like a first person point of view, and so. You have to make sure that the user know in what direction they're going. And like sometimes the video game is like linear, so there's only you know one way to go. But sometimes it's it's like you know an an infinite universe, mm. and you want to make sure that they don't spin their wheels in circles. Mm. Um, so the idea is by knowing you know um, by anticipating how you think, how you might think. You, we will know what you will be looking at. And it's a bit the idea of like, because we know where we're coming from, we'll know where you're um, going to. Right. And in terms of empathy, um, I keep referencing uh, this example, but the New York Times released a series of like 360 videos in 2016 of different, um, on different topics, different subjects. And there's one named The Displaced that really affected me at the time because... So it follows a group of children who's been displaced because of war. They, they've lost their home and so on. Some of them live in refugee camps. And, you know, there's so much, um, there are so many disasters happening in the world that I feel like often we tend to be desensitized to it. We are numbed and therefore often journalism have to kind of like increase the drama and the shock factor. So you have this constant... Um, you know, race for more sensation, but like the more sensationalist headlines are, like the more desensitized we came to them. And, you know, it's a bit of a race to the bottom. And with the series, The Displaced, um, you had no blood, no, you know, like shock images, but it really, it, it, it really shook my feelings because just... You know, if you, when when you're going through um, a catastrophe, something difficult, then there are the really big things, you know, that are hard. But there's also like the small things that are consequences of this catastrophe that that hits you, hits you in the feelings. Like for instance, um, if you're going through a breakup, then there's the breakup itself, and then there are like all the consequences of the breakup. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, um, you 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 know you have your you, you wake up. You used to seeing your partner's, I don't know, shoes by the bed or something like that, and just at that moment not seeing them anymore is maybe sometimes make it more real, 
and the person is gone. And um, it's all those small things in your, you know, in your day-to-day life that makes the big event a reality. And uh, so in the displays by fooling these kids, it's not just like, oh, this big thing, this is horrible. And then we can turn off the TV and get a mac and cheese, reheat it and just, you know, go on with our day. Um, to me, it made it real. It really made it real because, you know, it, it also connects um, our humanity with the, the, the humanity of, of, of the people in the series. I think often we tend to just be spectators and forget, um, you know, a news report, whether those are real people, like fictional characters, because also it's hard. It's hard to feel pain. It's hard to have empathy. Um, most of the time it implies, you know, in, it incurs pain. Mm-hmm. And um, and I really like how this series was not relying on any shock factor at all. Like there was no voiceover detailing how hard it was, and you did not you mm-hmm. didn't need to because it was just enough that really you know five years later that really that really mm-hmm. stayed with me. And I think also there was like a respect of um, there's a respect of the user well, um, viewer uh, sensibility. Because often when we have like sensationalist like headlines and so on, I, I think it's very infantilizing. Like you're being told how to feel. Like this is horrible. This is outrageous. And, you know, you're not, you're not allowed to make that conclusion on your own. Mm. And beside what can be outrageous for certain people might not be for others. And here i really appreciated that in the series like they were they were showing a problem in very clear and elo- in a very eloquent manner and completely allowing you to have whichever reaction was um right for you so those are 360 videos so there's no interactivity you're just following but you can watch in any directions and um you follow these kids in very mundane moments of, of their life. You know, like you see them interacting together, just kids being kids. Um, you see them, you know, you, like as they walk around in their environment. But even though they are kids being kids, like they are kids in a refugee camp, like mm-hmm. not in a playground. And that makes like a huge difference. The fact that you're, you are allowed to pick up on those differences on your own Mm. i feel like you notice the one that strike you the most you know for instance like the the instability of the environment like it may translate differently for you than for me because you and i we have different um different needs in terms of safety or like we translate safety differently based Mm. on our uh on how we grew up or like our life experience and so on and it's it's kind of like the ability to think and feel like how you were as a child and knowing like what is a good environment for a child. That's very interesting. Yeah. And you're more engaged with the actual subject matter or the actual root of the problem that way, as opposed to an edited interview where they're basically asking, you know, refugee uh, people, you know, to kind of recount their story in, in as, as horrifying as possible ways yeah. or for folks to to get that it's that it's horrible. Mm-hmm.
Interesting. You know, you've written and talked a lot about as well, just the, the, the symbols and shortcuts that we use um, to, to make sense of information. And, and there are many different ways we interact with information in XR, but uh, particularly in storytelling devices being coded by culture and gender and stuff. What are some kind of like classic um, examples here or just disconnect of, of experience by that kind of gender gender bias or exclusion and most uh most vr prototypes that are showing the body of the user of like very basic customization abilities and often by default it was a man like a white young white man hmm. um it just reflects the fact that um as a collective society like we what i mean we doesn't mean like you know all of us like it's been decided that the young white man was was the default mm. and um it's not there's you know there's no there's no reason to be in and that everything else is a deviation mm-hmm. and you know either everybody is a deviation or nobody is a deviation you know we're all in our own ways and um so i think it also reflects the fact that a lot of a uh, um game developers and those those industries are predominantly white and masculine mm-hmm. so it's very human to recreate what you know to mirror what you know mm-hmm. so um we all do that you know we all you know as artists we all um we all write stories about the things that we know and the people that we know but the problem is when um, no effort is being made in lifting the blocks for other people, you know, people coming from different walks of life to, um, to be part of those, of those communities when they're, when they're willing to. Yeah. I think this whole distinction versus, you know, like calling people minorities Mm. is to me just a way to like actually take away legitimacy. Mm. You know, it's like, yeah. It, 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 it implies forces that norm yes and it also implies that their it's like their existence is an edge case mm. i think 51 percent uh of people in the world are women so women are the majority actually mm-hmm. <laughs> if you really want to think in terms of numbers and so you know for me when i was trying early prototypes in 2016 in 2016 you know i was full-time working in tech and every time that I was um, expressing myself about that, it was always brushed off of like, oh, yeah, but like you, you know, this only applies to you. And no, I think <laughs> there's lots of me's out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, I think it's because in, in from your perspective, I'm the only person vocal about this. But a lot of mm-hmm. people were not um, like I remember at some point I, I was trying like a AR glasses prototype and they were extremely heavy extremely and they they really uh they were really painful on my nose bridge which i said you know i was like this isn't a great technology great software you have here but uh you know no one will be willing to keep them on their face after putting them on and the founder just brushed it off being like oh yeah but you have a small head like Why is your head so strangely small? Why is it not big like mine? Yeah, (laughs) I feel like, have you never noticed and looked around at women and children or on the planet? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And 
you know, it's like, but like, what, what's your audience? Like big headed mm. people? <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg is just one person that can fit into the actual exactly extremely limiting yeah wearables I think is like way far off except for mm -hmm. where they're trying to push it now in industries where it's like you have to for work <laughs> like, because I don't think yeah. anybody by choice um yeah let alone when you get in there that like you said you're wearing like big white male hands or whatever it is you know you're looking down at your body and having this like disembodied experience or just again having your body invisibilized like in this virtual experience like first thing you know it's uh, it's yeah yeah and so to me it's really for me it's really jarring when it's either like noticeably a, like a man's body mm. like sometimes like I don't I don't mind when it's generic like Mickey Mouse gloves type of um hands right. you know something cartoony or something like that like I don't mind that at all actually I like it because it it allows me to um um float and disappear so sometimes it's, it's like you know there's something comforting and just you know floating through mm. um but I dislike when it's when they've decided to be something specific and the specificity do not allow you uh, uh, does not allow you to port who you are into this virtual world. Mm -hmm. And another one is when when it's a woman's body and the woman's body is presented, you know, as like an object of desire mm -hmm. because the people who made the experience desire women's body. But when you're a woman, you know, like you don't. Like you don't necessarily have that relationship with your own body. <laughs> and I remember this experience. It was really weird because like look, I was looking down, like looking around and I looked down and the first thing I see is like, it was a female body. And like, I'm looking around, you know, trying to make sense of the environment around me. And as I look down, I see this rack, you know, those like, like two very perky boobs, uh, like two juicy apples just waiting to be picked up and eaten from the fruit basket. <laughs> And it was like, oh, okay. And, and, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't an uh, erotic VR experience. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. You know, it's just like, you know, like women, like they don't, you know, they don't wear like that kind of bra every day because it's um, uncomfortable or like, because, you know, we feel weird showing, showing that much skin uh uh, uh to, to you know to mm. random people it's just like it was just so weird mm -hmm. it's like stepping into someone else's fantasy it's like the, it's like the opposite of the possibilities of exactly it was yeah. not it was not a, um, a real character it was yeah exactly that, a fantasy and you know there's nothing there's nothing wrong in being you know being sexy and flaunting what you got but is this yeah but it's not your fantasy right it's a non and it's non-consensual in the sense that you're like oh i mean you re have a moment where you realize that you're in someone else's fantasy <laughs> without choosing it and also it felt it felt like uh, um disconnected from the environment and the experience because it was mm. like a, a gritty type of place where like you're in a basement it's cold and so on and um so it looked like you know there were with the other characters that were trying to go more for like the default uh, again you know we, we just said you know how it, like what an illusion the default is but it, it made me think of um i read you know when the movie mad max furry road came out i read um an interview with the costume designer she talked about the um, the costume and the look of uh, uh charlie's theron's character furiosa and um, at first, they wanted her to like in the in the in the first sketches. She had like um, a long ponytail, and she had a top with some kind of like a keyhole 
opening just above um, her breast, you know, to show a peak of uh, of the breast. And like, it's kind of like a um, a look that we see a lot in like you know female fighters in video games. Like they have this long, you know, Ariana Grande like ponytail and um, like cat, you know, cat suit with like a hole on the top to breathe. But the thing is, like, if you're if you're in a post-apocalyptic world, these two things would get you killed because in a fight, um, you don't want to have a ponytail, you don't want to have like hair that you know, that can be grabbed and pulled. It's very painful. So that's why they decided to shave her head, and because that's the you know that's the logical thing to do in a harsh world like that. And likewise, they decided that her her uh, her costumes would have no easy things uh to pull mm. because if you're about to like strike your enemy with your weapon let's say a sword or like a like a baseball bat or something you can just pull you know like the the cleavage part of the of mm. the top and neutralize your you know your opponent mm. and somebody who's been surviving in this world for decades would know better so is that that's interesting, and just in terms of like, yeah, what you bring to it from a filmics and storytelling side, in terms of character development and mm-hmm. world development, which and that you write and talk about a lot as well in terms of the creating that uh, atmosphere, right? The importance of that uh, atmosphere piece, and just that you can't get away with the gaps and stuff. But um, did with same with the embodied, uh, you know, the avatar is not just like what is a neutral kind of uh, you know physical form. But what is the story and how does that, how is that storied part, you know, worn on their bodies or worn in the way that they, the way that they clothe themselves? I think at the end, it all depends on the intention and your audience. Like, for instance, if the intention is to, um, you know, create like something erotic for a certain, you know, segment, like a certain demographics, it is fine. It's completely fine to have supporting characters, like characters whose only purpose is to be a plot device to help the plot move, move forward. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely fine. The problem is um, when you pretend or you're trying to do something that is for everyone mm-hmm. or that you know you don't allow a certain group of people to make experiences uh, for what their demographic like, like you know, namely women, non-binary people, all of that. So, you know, like with blockbusters, you have this idea of like making you know, making a film that that um, that everybody will like, and often it's taken the wrong way. It's more seen as like something that um, it's kind of like you know sending off all specificity and like diluting the message so that it it's it's not displeasing anybody. But I think it's more the other way around. It's more like creating an experience that's rich enough so that anybody will find something they like. And for me, like I think of like the first seasons of Game of Thrones. You know, it's Game of Thrones is very controversial. You know, there's there's a lot of violence, a lot of sex, but like a lot of people love it because they are they had so many different things. You know, you had like strong female characters. Uh, you know, you had the, um, the battles, the the beautiful visuals. You know, all of those things. But yeah, what a what a lost opportunity. This kind of double gaze that the women that women have, right? The the, the idea that when a man walks into a room, he sees through his own eyes, and when a woman walks into a room, she she sees through her own eyes and she also sees through the eyes of, of those around. She's kind of like floating above herself, like surveillance, um, yeah. very, very aware of the performative elements of, of her gender or whatever, and what, what they require and what they cost and, you know, all, all the, all the goods and bads of, of negotiating that. The possibility there to, to connect 
to finally see through our own eyes in an yeah. our kind of situation is exciting. But then you still have all of those other things behind who's building these, these things that you do, you're like, oh, thwarted again. So my point is, you know, as an artist staying specific, you, w- you will never be liked by um, everybody. You know, like mm. people, ple- people pleasing is actually the death of creativity. So it's more seeing that we have an infinite space to create in. And especially with the internet, like for instance, before talking in terms of movies, um, the studios own also the distribution and the theaters. In the theaters, they have a limited number of screens, of rooms, of slots. You know, there's only one Saturday night primetime slot. Mm-hmm. And so before we did have like indeed like um, a limited space mm-hmm. for for stories. But now with streaming, with video on demand, and with everything that technology is bringing, mm-hmm. there's room for everybody. And that's how we see on Netflix, you know, some very niche shows being picked up that um, five years before would have, you know, would have, it would have been hard to imagine them going further than being like a web series on YouTube, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Even Dear White People or something would not yeah, be, on, be on NBC or whatever, you know? But what's interesting is that they've broken through and shown like, oh, actually, like people like to see themselves. Like women like to see people with different bodies. People of color will actually pay for movies with whatever. Even non-people of color like to see black protagonists. Yet still, the statistics are insane, right? Like, like looking at something right now that's like the, the the hollywood film executives the reports that the the corporation ceos and chair running at top 18 studios 94 percent are white and 100 percent are male well well so to me my answer to that is like not trying to make everything uh for everybody but it's more like allowing everybody to create their own specific art like i don't like to like everything that's coming out of the theater, you know, mm-hmm. it's fine. Like I'm not the only person in the world. And that's the thing, you know, I think it's like, um, it's more like allowing creators to create. And if you don't like it, fine, stay in your lane. And that's something I really feel right now, um, making my film coming in hot. And like a big point, you know, that resonated with a lot of people um, about this was like, it's, um, it's a female led, a women driven film. And a lot of people uh, privately went in my DMs and ask, basically asking me um, how come that is progress and not discrimination against men. So to that, I answer, well, it's very simple. You know, if you see, so initially when I had the idea of coming in hot, I talked to different people around me, you know, different like artists I've worked with and so on to collaborate and make this film a reality. And as we're exchanging and so on, like, um, I remember, like, um, a man that I, you know, like, collaborated very closely on my previous film was telling him about the story. He loved it. But when we're discussing about the first development, every time I was like, no, that's that's not going exactly in the direction uh, I'd like to. It's an interesting story, but it's a different story that you're taking. Because I think the story was resonating on like a very specific aspect of my own woman exper- like experience of being a woman and someone who hasn't had chance to, to have this experience had a hard time grasping on that and was, you know, was kind of like projecting something different. And so at first it was kind of like natural that um, female artists were gravitating towards the, the project. That doesn't mean that um, I plan on excluding men from the creation of this film and so on. And actually, 
And when I see the backers and the crowdfunding campaign, other people posting on social media, it's not only women. There are a lot of men uh, who are interested in that story. And so my point is, it's about being specific. I identified something specific, and it makes sense that I surround myself with people who understand that specificity to uh, uh, bring this story to, to life. Yeah, and the only reason you're assumed to understand the specificity of male stories that are 90% of the literature you're going to study in school and 90% of the fiction books and 90% of the even children's shows that I watch all the time, I'm like, oh, here again, like, why is always the main yeah. character, like, boy, as I'm watching my daughter not see herself, like, in these things. But yeah, let's not give too much time to those fools. <laughs> Good. Seriously, if they don't get that, like, I don't, I don't even know, you know what I mean? Like, what, did, where are you, they should be stalking all the men's, like, crowdfunders being like, hey, like, where are, is everybody else? Like, exactly. I am not preventing, I am not preventing any male filmmaker making their movie. I am just allowing uh, some female filmmakers be part of that experience together and create a film together. It's always, you know, staying in our lanes. <laughs> if you don't like it, that's fine. It's not for you. <laughs> That's like, you know, go somewhere else and go troll somewhere, someone else. And in that article about, you know, once movie, once movie makers learn to break the frame, uh, bringing it back will be hard. Um, has the bro frame been broken yet? <laughs> um, will, will, will XR help, uh, help this? Like, um, well, this is, this yeah. is part of the thing where sometimes I'm a, um, I'm a bit of a provocateur and I have, you know, strong opinions loosely, loosely held. Um, the huge difference is when I wrote that, when I wrote that article, I wasn't working as a filmmaker. I was an avid consumer, or like a movie, you know, moviegoer. But, um, now how I feel, it's like, it's more about a layering of, um, the field. Um, for instance, like when the, when credit cards were first introduced, they didn't kill cash. They didn't kill checks. Um, they create like it's more like like they they create like a new layer in all the different ways that you can pay or like how you know make a transaction with someone. So that's how I feel uh, uh, as well. Just the same, you know, when when movies were introduced, they didn't kill theater. There's a lot, you know, like a lot like a lot less people go to the theater like to the theater. I mean, to watch plays because it's it's just like um, movies are more scalable, but. Um, it's different needs, you know, different, you know, different options, different needs. So now the way I feel about that is um, immersive storytelling is adding, is making its way into, into kind of like the layer cake in creating mm. a new layer. So um, rather than killing the frame, it's more rethinking the frame. Right. Why, why, why film? Um, and particularly coming in hot, you're, you're going to shoot it like a, like celluloid film, right? It's not going to be web or digital. <laughs> yeah. Because, because I love it. Um, because I've been, honestly, I've been passionate about movies since as far as I can remember. And also it's been quite new in my career that I'm making, you know, professionally making movies. But I, when I was really thinking about it, I've been making films since, uh, since I'm a kid. It's just that they were not really shareable. They were not of like of great interest for the for, for the public. Right. <laughs> but I remember, for instance, when I was twelve, I, I had read the the novel um, "The Fall of the House of Usher" by Edgar Allan Poe, and so it's it's a sci-fi it's a it's a sci-fi novel uh, and um, about a haunted house, 
And I really wanted to make it uh, to make a film about it. But that's something, you know, like as soon as you have sci-fi or fantasy elements, it's quite complicated. Mm. And I had gone as far as like, you know, trying to find um, a camcorder around me. And, and so spoiler, at the end of the novel, the, um, the house collapses and, you know, and it kills the, 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 the people living inside. And and so I wanted to create with a dollhouse, a miniature, you know, as they do in, in the films, like a miniature and, you know, film it being destroyed. Um, so I was only, you know, 11 or 12 and I was, you know, really thinking uh, as a filmmaker, it's just that as a kid at the time, I did not have access to the resources to make it. But if I if I had them, I would have definitely made them like I spent, you know, six months on that before I gave up. And so just eleven or twelve, and uh, it's just I it's just as so simple like that. I I love films. I love doing it, and it's um I think now compared to twenty sixteen when I wrote that article, I'm more nuanced in my opinions. You know, it's more like um I had a little bit of like if you're not with me, you're against me, and um and now I completely understand that there's like a huge neutral middle ground. Right. <laughs> In the end, what matters the most to me is creating emotions. And some stories are um, better suited for films, some other for like theater, some other for books, some other for like immersive storytelling. So it's about, you know, seeing those stories and seeing those technology, like seeing those mediums and seeing those technologies as tools to serve the story. But what comes first is the story and the emotional impact. So um, coming coming in hot, it will be the first time that I'll be working with um, analog film. Um, fortunately, my cinematographer Pip White has um, has worked with film before, and she loves it. And that she was actually, you know, the first to suggest the idea. At first, I was pretty scared of it, mm-hmm. uh, but um, it's in the end like very few people go watch a movie because it's been shot on film or because it's been shot on the latest camera. Hmm. It's those are considerations of the people making the the story, the piece of art. It's a bit like two painters discussing over two types of of paint or brushes. Mm-hmm. Us as the general audience, we don't care. Mm-hmm. We want like we want something that creates magic. Mm-hmm. So to me it's more been like um um expanding the realms of my possibilities. I think like, for instance, like uh, I, I moved to LA four years ago and every time or like often when I'm outside of LA or like I'm, I'm going uh, back in Europe to my hometown and so on, there's always people can, can like sarcastically asking. So like, how's Hollywood, you know, are you making it? You know, mm. um, how's the thing going? And, you know, when they say making it, like, I think what they actually meant is like the idea of like being discovered. And it's like, you know, you're plucked out of the ma- of, of the mass of, you know, of the gender, you know, of, of everybody. And like, you're the chosen one. And then, you know, you're based out, you know, fame and wealth and all of that. But that's really not how it works. The way it works is, is you know, if... If you're being an artist because you want to be discovered and, and famed and loved, then um, you're, you'll you're be miserable. Yeah, you will be miserable. Because all of those things like happiness, fame, wealth, all of that success, 
they are byproducts of the work of creating. And um, but I noticed that the the artists around me who are who they keep doing it for the joy of of creating is because they would rather be creating than uh, you know being in the tropics sipping cocktails. Mm-hmm. Um, they they end up you know it 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 ends up working out for them because they infuse a lot more passion uh, in what they do and the fact that it's their purpose give them like resilience mm. because if it doesn't work out they don't quit like maybe they can take a break maybe they they'll do things differently for sure that that's that's necessary but they'll uh, um, they'll they'll come back to it one way or another because that's what they're meant to do. And so to go back to the expression, like making it, it got me thinking, well, you know, it's really about making it, but my, but not making it as, as in like breakthrough, like making it for yourself, making, making your own work. And I've really noticed the difference since I started doing my own projects. And first, it's always more efficient to talk about your project than talking about yourself in terms of self-promotion. It's like your your own projects will be the best promotional vehicle for yourself first. Second, you know, when when you're doing your own projects and suddenly you can create value for others, whether you create a piece of art that they enjoy or potentially employment opportunities. And that is a lot more attractive than being, you know, uh, I'm a first time director, do you have a script for me to direct? Like, you know, do you have a budget for me to make my film, which is, which is very needy. If instead you like, you're, you're presenting yourself, you know, I'm, do- this is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I need X and Y to get to my next step. Um, it's, it's different. It's much more interesting. So for, for women, for uh, uh, non-cis people and so on, then I guess I would say it's like not being afraid of um, kind of like creating their own community um, of, you know, helping each other out, like dropping the whole idea of, you know, idolizing the people who are more successful and mm. so on. Like they're just humans and stuff doing things with the people around you. And, and that's really how you grow, how you create, you know, your own, your own pipeline mm-hmm. and supporting your friends. That's really how studio executives are doing. You know, mm-hmm. they're, finding, they're funding their friends, they're mm-hmm. hiring their friends. So let's take a page from their playbook. Yeah, that's such an interesting, yeah, that's a great observation. Yeah, that narrative, the way that that works on the bottom mm-hmm. is very different. That's like, yeah, sold as a failure narrative on that when you're not at the top, yeah. But that's exactly how exactly. it and success is meant to be shared. So when someone, it's also about dropping, you know, dropping the scarcity mindset, being like, there's really an infinite, like infinite room for, for success, whatever success means for you. Uh, you know, the idea that there's just a limited number of people, that's so not true because for instance, like so many successful artists, they can like created their genre, their type. And um, so when, you favor solidarity over competition when somebody is successful in your community then the whole community is successful and grows from it it's a bit let's say if you have a relationship you know a relationship between two people and let's say the woman like between a man and a woman and the woman has a promotion and 
you can either choose to be like, oh, my wife uh, earns more than I do in being resentful of that, feeling feeling threatened and, and you know insecure about that. Or you might be thinking as a couple, we make more money. So I really think that, you know, once, you know, when you build a community and, and you have the spirit of solidarity, you know, we, we are helping each other out during the, like in the hard times, but then everybody grows and benefits during the good times. Yeah, we all, we all rise together. So how can people support you and coming in hot? So you're, we are, we are currently fundraising for the production of the film. So people can go to uh, comingandhotfilm.com and they can back us financially at any level that feels right for them. Uh, and another way that um, we can be helped is by sharing uh, comingandhotfilm.com on social media to uh, bring more exposure. What type of stories are you driven to tell in your films and, and mm-hmm. XR experiences? Like, what is the... Um... Stories with complex female characters first, because those stories reflect the women who are around me, mm. and these women inspires me inspire me a lot. Um, then, yeah, um, immersive storytelling. Like I, you know, you know, um, I grew up watching a lot of Disney movies, and Disney movie really suspend reality. And that's something that I really want to recreate in, uh, in, um, in my films or like immersive storytelling, like, you know, immersive experiences, something that creates another reality that you want to be engulfed in, mm. not just replicating, you know, going on the subway <laughs> or, <laughs> right. right. Um, Okay, and um, yeah, I just have some, like a little, so I don't know if I'm going to call it lightning round, I don't know what I'm going to call Some questions, I mean, they're more about XR and, 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 and web, web 3.0 than they are about film necessarily, but mm-hmm. uh, AR or VR? I'm a storyteller, I'm a creator, and VR gives more freedom for the creator because we can control the whole environment. Uh, but then as a, um, as a spectator, as somebody who experienced, and AR gives you more power, and AR blends into your own environment, so it's different. AR somewhere, or, or AR everywhere, and by that I mean like digital, digital assets and physical spaces, or, or, or image based, or you know, digital things attached to physical. Uh... Mm-hmm. Well, to me, like good AR should read the environment and use it, because if it's just like a you know random overlay. Uh, like context is everything. Uh, if it's just a random overlay, then, you know, it's just uh, a novelty little thing that people will forget right away. But for instance, you know, things that are leveraging the horizontal surfaces around you that can um, identify some elements. Uh, to me, like those are um, those are more powerful because we've all, we've all seen the experiences where you have like a 3D object appearing in front of you. And... That's very cool the first time, but now it doesn't impress anybody. But for instance, when Pokemon Go, Pokemon Go came out, and you know the idea that Pokemons are everywhere, it really adds magic to your environment. Yeah, that third space. Yes, like that. We, it's like there's an invisible matrix around us with magic 
I remember that, yes, yeah, summer 2016, when the game came out, I, I was so hooked on the game. And uh, it became, you know, like people became a lot more active, like going around. It was yeah. you would see different Pokemons, whether like you're close to water or, you know, like in a drier environment. And so the idea is like, oh, let's see, you know, let's walk around in the neighborhood and like see what we find. And with the digital magic of the game, it allows you to connect with the physical magic, yeah. like the like the actual magic of the place, the places around you. But you needed like a little tip. A little push to open your eyes and pay attention or like look at things differently wearable or mobile uh, well so in 2014 when we we're talking a lot about wearables i loved them and because what i loved about them was the promise of having the devices um blend into our lifestyle rather than the other way around where we are slouching behind screens and we are adapting our body posture to the technology but Wearables so far haven't really um, delivered yet on that promise, but I keep believing. I keep believing. The thing is, a lot of people who create our current technology, you know, software and hardware, are greedy and driven by advertising profits, and that's just how it works. Uh, and that's how we, you know, determine viability of a project. So there are incentives in kind of like derailing. Um, the human lifestyle um, towards, you know, to serve technology rather than the other way around. Apps or, or platforms? Aren't they becoming the same thing? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. But I mean, individual, you think people want individual experiences or, or to find it all in, in one spot? I mean, it's great when services are expanding and offering new features. Mm. But sometimes, you know... Sometimes certain things are meant to be like just a plug and play, you know, like a, like a grab and go thing. You know, this joke that if you buy a vacuum cleaner on Amazon, then for weeks you'll have those ads. You may be interested into those other uh, types of vacuum cleaners. And like, no, I just wanted, you know, this done, you know. Mm -hmm. The thing is like, this is not a viable model in terms of advertising revenue. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we need... The current metrics is, uh, you know, attention, time spent in the app and so on. There's this incentive in like creating dependency uh, and adding all those features to kind of like keep you locked in in, the, in this ecosystem. Mm. So I would say for that one, I, I love the, um, the humility of, of apps that understand that they have a single purpose or, you know, that stay specific. Well, thank you, Adriana. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Karen. To support Adriana's work, go to cominginhotfilm.com. With only one week left in their campaign ending July 23rd, they are so close to reaching their goal. And thank you for listening to this preview episode of the upcoming season three of We Make Media. Femme Futures will be rolling out more episodes soon. Until then, stay creative. And do be artists.